0: Hi, my name's Ari Stein, and this is the 52 Insights Podcast. It's now estimated that because of our westernized diet, cases of autoimmune diseases are rising between 3 and 9% a year. How did we become so incredibly unhealthy? How did obesity and diabetes become some of the most prevalent diseases of our civilization? As soon as the westernised diet started leaching off white flour and sugar, people across the world became inordinately unhealthy as a consequence. Our diets have deteriorated immensely. How then, in 2022, should we think about health? Science journalist Gary Taubes has been reporting on the inadequacies of nutrition science for decades. A best-selling author behind the recently re-released The Case for Keto and the case against sugar. Rather than take the word of science on face value, he tends to see the nutrition and health complex being littered with methodological sinkholes. For decades, his hunch behind the causes of obesity have attracted the intense ire of the scientific community. But the nutrition and health community can at least agree on one thing with Gary. Sugar has captivated us for all the wrong reasons. It has become the cornerstone of our deterioration. At the dawn of the new year, this being the first interview for 52 Insights, it is fitting to look at our health and what we put into our bodies. In this fascinating discussion with Gary, he reveals the mechanisms that lie behind the food industry complex, how it's shaped the way we eat and think, and many of its attached conspiracies that go with it. Ultimately, many of us are facing down a myriad of chronic illnesses if we don't change our behavior. And Gary gives us a glimpse of what we can do to fix this, the most important thing Gary says is not what you put in your body, but getting your thought environment right. This is my chat with science journalist, intellectual rogue, and best-selling author, Gary Taubes. Enjoy. Links for more info about Gary's work is on the website. Gary Taubes, um, welcome to the 52 Insights podcast. Ari, thank you for having me. I'm so appreciative uh, you being here and taking the time to, to talk to us. So this is the first interview of the year for 52 Insights, and I think it's quite a fitting one. You know, one of the reasons why um, I really wanted to talk to you at this point is that, you know, we're early on in the new year, and um, a lot of people right now are committing to new resolutions about their health, um, you know, their diet, their fitness, ideas about you know where they want what where they want to go in life. Um, whereas at the same time, I'm sure you're aware, the last years have taken a, an extensive toll on people's health. And um, it's very hard to grasp the goal of becoming healthier whilst there is potentially, you know, a lack of motivation out there, inherent challenges to improving, um, you know, obviously because of COVID and the like pandemic. Um, so How do you define that stressful paradox, uh, talking about mental health or a lack of motivation and that wish to be healthier staring down at 2022?
1: That's an interesting question. Um, Well, okay, from my perspective, and I have a a very unconventional perspective, luckily it's becoming more and more conventional with each passing year, but we have a long way to go. my research as a journalist, science journalist, historian has led me to believe that for the past century, the research community has misunderstood the fundamental nature of obesity and, and, and the excess weight. And they came to this very simplistic conception that it's caused by eating too much and the way that you get healthy if you're overweight or Uh, dealing with obesity is to eat less and exercise more. And that's almost universally fails, at least after you (laughs) become an adult. And the assumption is it fails because people don't try hard enough, or they're not consistent, or they're not following instructions. And people who struggle with their weight also feel that they're failing. So the conflict becomes one of how do I approach this program of becoming healthy that inevitably fails and that makes me feel like a failure? And if I don't do that, how do I become healthy? And there are solutions, all solutions take sacrifice in this business. But then the question is what sacrifices do you have to make? And what's the right way to think about obesity and overweight? Why do we get fat um, from there? And again, because I have an unconventional perspective, the question then becomes, why should I believe somebody like Taubes when I could call up somebody at the Karolinsk Institute and they'll tell me to eat less and exercise more? And if I fail, it's because I'm not trying hard enough.
0: So what, what what would be some of the things that you would promote? You talk about your um, your uh, unorthodox view. What would be some of the things that you would, you know, potentially tell someone at the, at the dawn of a new year that, that you would encourage um, to perhaps change track?
1: Okay, so let's start by talking about why people get fat, to use a perhaps politically unacceptable way to phrase it. Um, until the 1930s, researchers had basically two theories about the cause of obesity. One is it's constitutional, it's hormonal, people, some people are gonna get fat, regardless of how much they eat. The other was this idea that we get fat just because we eat too much. It's a problem of willpower, of the brain, the brain not being able to regulate intake and expenditure. Um, When you look through the research, which is increasingly easy to do for lay people in this day and age with the internet, um, you find that The hypothesis that obesity is a sort of hormonal regulatory disorder, that overweight is a hormonal regulatory disorder, um, was very strongly supported by animal experiments. Uh, You could actually literally semi-starve some famous animal models, feed them only half the calories that a lean animal is eating, and the animal will get fat anyway. So it doesn't have anything to do with how much they eat. It's their bodies are trying to accumulate fat for some reason that until the 1960s was not understood. And in the 1960s, it became clear that the hormone insulin is a hormone that plays the primary role in regulating fat accumulation in humans. And so, again, by the 1960s, you had this explosion and best-selling diet books that advocated for carbohydrate restriction, most famously Dr. Atkins' Diet Revolution in the United States. Um, And the problem was in the 1960s, another segment of the nutrition community had decided that the worst thing you could do dietarily was eat a lot of fat. Saturated fat in particular causes heart disease. And so there's a trade-off in diets if you We tend to eat a certain amount of calories every day to get the energy we need. So as these low-carb diet books sort of exploded from the 1960s onward, advocating that anyone who didn't want to be fat shouldn't eat carbs, the medical community responded by going, great, you're going to kill people by giving them heart disease. And for the past 60 years, we've been stuck in this sort of paradox. My advice to anyone who wants to lose weight, they've got to avoid Grains, starches, sugars, most beers, which, you know, alcohol, but yeah. beer.
0: We're going to get to your uh, the book that was just released on paperback, The Case for Keto, um, further into the chat. But I, I also just wanted to kind of paint a picture of your background as well, so people understand exactly who you are and, and where you come from. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you you kind of came to prominence um in terms of the media circle in 2002 when you wrote this article that went viral for the New York Times what if it's all been a big fat lie and I guess it set off a journey for you where where again you know this might be considered an outlier this phrase an intellectual rogue in the science and health community and your books have followed a similar kind of thread you tend to go against the grain as somehow some one of the ways people would describe you. Can you just give me a background related to that um, approach of, of how you uh, approach the orthodoxy in general in, in the health and nutrition circles? Okay. Well, let me give you
1: the full my full background. So I, was, uh, I studied, I was a science major in college. I studied physics at Harvard and I wasn't very good at it. Um, I transitioned into journalism, I became a science writer. My first book, I lived at CERN, the big physics uh, lab outside of Geneva. Um, Today, we would say I was embedded with the physicists, and I followed uh, 150-odd, very, well, 120-odd, very, very smart physicists as they realized they had discovered a non-existent phenomenon and had, in the non-technical term, screwed up and had to acknowledge it. And I watched that process. Uh, my second book was on uh, this sort of the great scientific fiasco of the late 20th century, cold fusion. And again, it was this, it was actually very obviously wrong, this phenomenon. The question was, how did, how did it get to the point where people believed, anyone believed it was true, let alone committed to researching it and in some cases committed spending the rest of their life to researching non-existent phenomena. Mm -hmm. When I finished the second book on cold fusion, my friends in the physics community suggested I look at the research in public health because they thought it was terrible. Mm -hmm. And it, uh, in part because it's so hard to do. You can't do the kinds of rigorous experiments on humans and their health that you could do on fundamental particles or solid state devices. Or, um, so as a result, the public health research community just kind of lowered their standards. In doing so, they end up producing a lot of unreliable results. Um, so I, I, by the early 90s, I was writing about uh, the field of epidemiology. And by the late 90s, I stumbled into the nutrition field. I was working for the journal Science. And I serendipitously came upon a was given a story to write up on uh, a new diet that lowered blood pressure paper was being published in the New England Journal of Medicine. And doing that story, I realized that there was an enormous controversy over this idea that salt or sodium in our diets cause high blood pressure, something that's still communicated by public health authorities as a undeniable truth today. (laughs) While doing that story, I was interviewing one of the uh, researchers who was m- most responsible for communicating this idea that sodium or salt caused high blood pressure. And he struck me as very clearly a terrible scientist, the same way a literary critic thinks he knows a bad writer. She, he or she knows a bad writer when they read one. Um, So when this fellow told me that he was responsible not only for the idea that salt causes high blood pressure, but the idea that high-fat diets cause heart disease, I called up my editor at Science, and I said, when I'm done writing about salt, I'm going to write about fat. Um, I spent a year on a single magazine article for the journal Science, interviewed 160-odd researchers and administrators to understand how the... Research community could take such ambiguous data and turn it into public health recommendations for what effectively became the entire world, and that led me into the obesity story and that New York Times magazine article, and you know. So that unfortunately, my conclusions have been at odds with the conventional wisdom.
0: Yeah. And I think one of the things that I struggle with personally is that, you know, I'm very interested in in health and being healthy. And what does that even mean today? Like to be healthy. Um, And there's so many misnomers and tropes and, um, you know, sinkholes intellectually that you can pull down this paper and that paper. People just don't have the time to listen to a whole host of podcasts and read a whole bunch of peer reviewed journals. How are people meant to, you know, collect and extract the right information?
1: Well, and they're clearly not. Um, it's, uh, I, I mean, it's a mess. It's a, you know, I. So I came into this a uh, huge fan of science and good science. Like I said, my mentors were some of the best experimental researchers in the world, some of the smartest people in the world. On, I now tend to see science as a noise generating uh, or an institution, a scientific, I mean, with every um, tens of thousands of journals, publishing hundreds of thousands of articles every week, um, every institution generating, you know, producing, graduate students and PhDs who have to have their names on papers, the idea of getting, it's, it's a mess. And the question is, if, if anyone ever generates a signal, meaningful signal, how do you see it amidst all this noise that's being generated every day? And how do you realize it's a signal? And I don't have answers to any of that. But you can see how our belief systems were built on the work of one or a very few individuals, influential individuals, how they dominate, and particularly medicine and health. Yeah. So you could see where things went wrong pretty easily. The question then becomes what's right.
0: Yeah. Well, let's, let's talk about what we do know. I want for our audience for you to paint a picture of how unhealthy we've become in the Western world um, because I'd really like to hear about you know, the focus that your work is on or has been is, is around obesity and moving forward, you said diabetes. They have this term which is called civilization diseases, um, which is kind of looped around, you know, the westernized diet, obesity, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, cancer, autoimmune diseases. How bad is it right now? Maybe you can paint a picture in numbers or just um, what it looks like in the world right now. Okay, well
1: these so this idea of the originally it was called diseases of civilization and then we the seventies the terms were sort of shifted to Western diseases. There's a there's a common observation I talk about in all my books, which is is Populations transition from whatever their traditional diets are to, in effect, modern Western diets. They see epidemics of obesity and diabetes and heart disease and cancer and all these diseases that had been relatively infrequent become common, uh, very common. So in the U.S., for instance, this transition begins as it does in, in 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 Europe it begins with the industrial revolution in the late 70s and by the late 1700s and by the early 1800s um sugar consumption in particular starts to explode because sugar becomes a cheaper and cheaper commodity and white flour the refinement the machine refining of grain kicks in and you get more and more white flour in the diet <clears throat> and from the 19 mid- 19th century onward, you can see the steady increase in in diabetes risk, uh, diabetes incidence and mortality, and it coincides with obesity, and then it explodes in the sort of second half of the 20th century, Um, to the point that if you look at the numbers, it's hard to make really accurate comparisons because diagnoses were different. There's all kinds of effects that influenced incidence rates and prevalence rates. But if you look at the numbers, diabetes, for instance, in the United States went from being maybe a third of the percent of the population to currently 10% of the population is diagnosed with diabetes. Um, obesity increased from probably in, you know. The single digits, two, three, 4% in the late 19th century to over 40% today, depending upon what data set you use. Um, you see these same explosions in virtually every population in the world. Um, yeah. It coincides. So the idea is something about the Western diet and lifestyle drives obesity and diabetes and all the diseases that are associated with it, which include cancer and heart disease and stroke, you know, cerebrovascular disease, uh, dementia. Uh, again, it gets complicated because as populations transition to Western diets and lifestyles, they also transition to having Western trained doctors with interesting whatever the modern diagnostic technology of the era is, So there's a legitimate debate about whether these diseases were always there, but now they're recorded. And there's a debate about whether or not um, the as the population ages, because as they transition to Western diets, they tend to reduce the infant mortality and the mortality from infectious diseases. So they live longer and they live long enough to get these chronic diseases. So there's all these trade-offs. But That said, the data is pretty compelling and was even 80, 90 years ago that the way a French physician said in 1900 or so with the progress of civilization, these diseases increase in prevalence. And then the question is what's causing them? And because they all associate with the obesity, the conventional wisdom is as societies westernized they have more food available they eat too much they have more labor saving devices they don't exercise enough and that makes them fatter and that's the cause
0: and you're saying a key culprit here is sugar
1: yeah you add basically sugar and white flour to any population and by that i mean you see the same diseases appear for instance in the inuit living on you know caribou and seal meat and you know, salmon and in in the Arctic regions of Canada, as you see, appear in the Native Americans living in Arizona and living in the Great Plains, as you see, appear in, uh, you know, populations in the Himalayas living, you know, purely agrarian populations. So whatever the traditional diet is, something changes in with Westernization and. What was fascinating when you look at the history is the researchers, the physicians who were there at the time saw this happening. It's called a nutrition transition. They saw these diseases appearing in the populations and they assumed it was sugar and white flour, because that's what was changing. That's what you the Western, you know, Europeans and Americans. Shipped around the world when they traded with these populations because you can carry sugar and white flour in your boats and it's not gonna rot because there's no vitamins or minerals in it. Um and even the you know insects don't like it all that much. That was always the story. And then in the US, in the 1950s and 1960s, based on the work of one very uh zealous very smart nutritionist, who just wasn't a very good scientist, named Ansel Keys. He managed to convince the world that the problem with modern diets was saturated fats. And all this other work was thrown out because it couldn't be reconciled with this idea that saturated fat causes heart disease. Um, It's a fascinating history.
0: And I love, you know, you referenced once um, development of the diet in America. In the uh, early 20th century to the mid 20th century, uh, the first meal of the day is essentially, you know, American dessert with fiber. I just absolutely love the way you phrase that.
1: Well, this is what happens with the way in the book The studying the history of sugar consumption was fascinating because basically what happened, yeah, by in the so sugar with the Industrial Revolution in the US. And through the 19th century, it goes from, it starts the you know, 1800s, you know, the 18 knots, it's, it's maybe five pounds of sugar per person per year on average. That's sort of the sugar in a can of Coke once a week. Okay. Um, and then by the end of the 19th century, it's up to about 80, 90 pounds of sugar per year. And in the 1840s, you get the invention uh, of the the candy industry and the chocolate industry and the um, ice cream industry, all in that one decade. And then the 1870s, 1880s, the soft drink industry comes around, and suddenly we're, you know, Coke and Pepsi and the, this world. International struggle to make sure that there's no place in the world you can go, no I, uh, spot so isolated and remote that when you get there, there won't be a Coke machine or a Pepsi machine to, you know, quench your thirst. Um, and then in the 1900s, in the late 19th century, you get the invention of all these uh, candy bars that we still eat today. Um, And then by the 1930s, some things you needed refrigerators for. And we didn't have refrigerators until the 1930s. They start to become common. So in the 1930s, you basically get the invention of fruit juice, which is used to be if you wanted fruit, you had to have a lemon tree in your backyard and you'd squeeze lemonade or you'd buy lemons at the market, I guess. But now the California orange growers think, what are we going to do with all the oranges we can't sell? Well, we could market them as orange juice. And we could convince the world that they need vitamin C from the orange juice, which is a big nutritional revolution of that era, the importance of vitamins. So you get the orange juice comes in, and then by the 1940s, you get sugary cereals for the first time. Um, It was interesting that cereal industry was created in the United States by health nuts. Kellogg and Post ran sanatoriums for you know, people with digestive problems and they fed them the fiber and the bran and cereals and they didn't like sugar. But then one entrepreneur in the 1930s is watching his children pour sugar on their cereal. And he's so offended by this at breakfast that he responds by creating a cereal that's already sugar coated, like the exact opposite of what you would have expected. And he has trouble marketing it because the sugar coated cereals clump together, and his company gets sewn to another company that gets bought by Post, and the late 1940s, Post comes out with, I think it was like Cocoa Krispies or something, the first sugar-coated cereal, and it's like creating the first you know, nuclear bomb. Everybody else has to create their... Sugar coated cereal suddenly, or they'll be run out of the industry. And by the 1960s, is you know, breakfast in America for kids is sugary cereals with sugary beverages, orange juice, or fruit juice, or even Coca Cola yeah. next to it. And you've converted breakfast into an in effect dessert. And if you think about it today, how many of the snacks and the breaks we get. Well, first of all, dessert courses didn't exist even until the 19th century, and late 19th century, unless you were very rich.
0: Is that right? Yeah, that's fascinating.
1: You know, because they, they didn't have. <laughs> I mean, if you were rich, you could have sugar, um, but if you weren't, it just wasn't available, and so you had things like cheese, like the French do, after the meal to put a cap on it. But then it became everything became sort of some variation of dessert. And in the US, even, um, I remember I spent the year I wrote my book um, that I had researched at CERN. I lived in Paris when I wrote it, which was heavenly. Um, And I moved back to New York afterwards and everything in New York tasted the same. Didn't matter what restaurant I went to. It was because so much of it, even the dinners include sugar as part of the recipe because your palate gets
0: so it seems like you have a bone to pick with um a lot of the major um you know food companies that are creating um pretty much much of the food that we eat today in the western diet if you had gary all the ceos well, not all, but some, because maybe if they knew you were there, they wouldn't come. So, some of the CEOs of the major sugar producing companies in a room, in a boardroom. So say James Quincy, CEO of Coca-Cola to Grant Reed of Mars. What would, you, what would you tell them in some shape or form? Or is there someone else you would want to put in that room as well?
1: That's interesting because I had this conversation once with the uh, vice president at PepsiCo, I was speaking at an Aspen Ideas Festival, I think it was 2011. I had had this article in the New York Times on whether sugar is toxic, cover of the New York Times magazine. And uh, the PepsiCo vice president was there and wanted to meet with me and this uh, woman I was working with on the research, uh, Kristen Kearns, who provided some of the key research for the book that turned into the bookcase against sugar. So we met with this woman, and uh, she wanted to tell us all the things that PepsiCo was doing to make their products healthier, and I think they were committed, but a lot of it was they wanted to reduce the proportion of sugar in every product they sold, or the average proportion. So, the way they did that was by buying up companies so that they could sell products like bottled water that didn't have sugar in them. So, if they added, you know, 100 million bottled water sales every day that didn't have sugar, that brought down the average sugar in every product they sold by a significant amount. That was sort of their goal. They could sell other products and never have to reduce the sugar consumption of say a can of Pepsi, the sugar content. So she asked me, what would she do? What would I do if I was in her place? And I said, I can't answer that, but think of it this way. Let's imagine you're, you have the exact same job at RJR Reynolds, a major tobacco producer, and it's 1960 (laughs) and five years from now, the Surgeon General is going to come out with a report linking sugar consumption, uh, tobacco smoke to lung cancer. What should you do then? Because I understand the desires, you know, this, we live in a capitalist society. Companies want to make their stockholders money, and that's what they're empowered to do, and that's what they're supposed to do. Um, the food industry in general hasn't really cared whether or not their products had sugar as a sweetener. Now, sugar has other uses uh, in food, regrettably. It's very useful as a food additive. But the industry, like the soda industry, doesn't care if they sweeten their sodas with sugar or with um, artificial sweeteners. Artificial sweeteners are cheaper, and they still get to sell the products. So in an ideal world, PepsiCo could and you see this today, you see companies now advertise, like Pepsi advertises zero sugar Pepsi. Coke advertises, you know, Coke Zero. It's got zero sugar in it. Um, 10 years ago, they didn't do that. They advertised low-calorie sodas, but they would never say low or no sugar because that implied it had artificial sweeteners on it, and we'd all been conditioned to think artificial sweeteners will kill
0: us. And they've just shifted their messaging to zero sugar, yeah. but in the background, they've added sweeteners.
1: Yeah, they need. that's the problem. We all now expect a certain level of sweetness, in everything we eat, and particularly when, if you get a Coke, you want it to taste like a Coke. I understand that. Um, Anyway, that's, the problem is the sugar industry itself, which only sells sugar. Yeah, so. So, and even in the 60s, they were looking for other uses for sugar because they saw this coming, industrial uses of sugar, and there are some. You know, you could use it to make ethanol to, but um but they're in, they they have a problem and there's uh you know I don't I the joy of being a journalist is you don't have to offer solutions, you only have to criticize.
0: So let's talk about what sugar actually does. You have your work has attracted some ire from the scientific community. Um some of you, or you might have heard uh, the the chat, and you might have your own thoughts, Gary, about that the chat that you did with um, Stefan Gayonet on the um, on the Joe Rogan show. The Rogan show. It was almost like an an MMA fight to to be. You know,
1: if only it had been an MMA fight, <laughs> that probably would have been more enjoyable. Mm.
0: But you know, look. There are two sides, and I think that's what's great about critical thinking and truth-seeking is that they can read your work and they can read his work. And I think by the end, it kind of, um, you know, it, it kind of dev- devolved, but, you know, the, the essential points were there. So so let's talk about that contention for, for a moment. Um, essentially, you know, your work is essentially saying, the orthodoxy says the calorie in, calorie out, controlled by the brain, is is not the issue, but you're saying that the foods we eat, like sugar, essentially create a hormonal response that tells the body to store the fat or mobilize it for fuel. But many of us in a westernised world today are insulin resistant, um, and we're locking away fat, but we're not able to have that metabolic flexibility. Is that somewhere in the right vicinity?
1: Yeah, that's a pretty good assessment. Um- so yeah, the and this is where um, this yeah this is where the the um, the conflict comes in where I, I uh, where I incur people's wrath. I don't uh, I actually don't know what proportion of the research community finds my work disturbing because. Um, they can always choose not to read it um i I don't even know if you reached out to obesity like for instance when i was uh reporting my the last piece i wrote on obesity that was a long essay published in stat news um i reached out to uh researchers three of them at the Karolinsk institute have been doing what i think is fascinating research and um agrees very closely to what I've been arguing, and uh, none of them would talk to me, and I don't know if they wouldn't talk to me because they know my work and think of me as a quack, or they don't think of any journalist. I pestered them with emails. I I said, look, we think the same way. I'm one of your biggest supporters. I couldn't get them to talk to me. Um, To this day, I'm still mystified, and if I ever get to Stockholm, I may knock on their door and, and see if I can, you know, it's just, anyway, so. Uh, on the other hand, some of the leading researchers in the world now agree with me. But you know, my argument that uh, obesity researchers, in effect, embraced this idea. And beginning in 1931, like I said, they had two competing hypotheses of obesity: one, it's eating too much; one, it's a hormonal dysregulation. They embraced the eating too much hypothesis based on. Very little evidence. Um, the again the advocacy of one influential researcher. Um, and then they misinterpreted every experiment they've done ever since. Um and the other hypothesis is again this hormonal regulatory hypothesis. So the best way to describe the position. <clears throat> it puts the research community in, is when I lectured about this at uh, the largest academic obesity research center in the US, is called the Pennington Biomedical Research Center in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. They invited me to come lecture back around 2009, and I talked about the history of these hypotheses, and I described the problem, and I explained that it's not an overeating, it's not, energy imbalance that causes obesity, it's the hormonal dysregulation. And afterwards, one of the faculty, a fellow who looked to be maybe in his late 60s, very dapper man, raised his hand in the standing room only audience and said, Mr. Talbs, is it fair to say that one subtext of your talk is you think we are all idiots? OK, so the problem is I am implying that they missed, They for for 100 years, they have had the wrong hypothesis, and the hypothesis they missed is inanely simple. And it's much, much easier to assume that I'm wrong and a quack than it is to thoughtfully sort of investigate my claims. And in fact, I've made the argument to influential obesity research that I am like a whistleblower, And I've had a unique opportunity to uncover not malfeasance, but just bad science in this place, and that it's incumbent on the research community to see if I am right. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I missed something obvious, but not just to dismiss my claims out of hand. Um, People like Stephen DNA claim to have at least Well, they claim to have evidence that I'm wrong. So that's the basis of his argument. But he also is inculcated in the conventional thinking. And when we actually discuss the evidence, which we didn't really do on Rogan, it's problematic. So anyway, that's the issue. You can't tell people they've been wrong for 100 years, that everything they're doing is based on an incorrect hypothesis, that they are misinterpreting all their research.
0: But related to your work, would you say that In in, in, uh, By and large, the the nutrition and health community, however you want to define it, would agree, at least with you, that sugar is an issue.
1: Well, that's what made sugar such an interesting book to write, because I knew that most of the community wanted to agree with me that sugar was a problem. Okay, they do think sugar is a problem, but the problem is, according to the conventional wisdom,
0: it's not. Well, how do you define conventional wisdom then? nutritionists believe
1: that a calorie is a calorie, that people get fat because they eat too many calories, not because any of these calories have any unique hormonal effect in the human body to foster fat accumulation. So by that definition, there's nothing wrong with sugar other than that people consume too much of it. You cannot regulate against sugar on the basis that people like it.
0: that there has to be, there has to be some uh, 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 political motivation here? Because you know there, there must be a body of evidence that shows sugar is inherently bad. So is there a food industry complex working against the visibility that... There, well, there is a food industry
1: complex, but I don't think they play the major role. They help shape the way people think, in part by um, uh, casting such a taint over artificial sweeteners, which the sugar industry definitely sort of promoted and funded that research. But fundamentally, the problem is that the nutrition, obesity, diabetes community embrace this way of thinking. People get fat because they eat too much. It's not a hormonal issue. And if they eat too much, it's the calories in the food that are the problem. And the worst you can say about sugars are too many calories. And once they then decided that the problem with modern diets was saturated fat, that's what the public health programs focused on. And that's what I documented in my first book and the journalist Nina Teicholtz does a wonderful job documenting in her book, um, The Big Fat Surprise, Big Fat Lie. But still people, you know, we have this sort of, I mean, we were pretty much taught that sugar should be a treat. That it's something you eat in moderation. It's something parents know that even if they believe everything the nutritionists say, they know they have to ration their shit's sugar content, you know, that they can't let them just have dessert for breakfast, even though they're kind of having dessert for breakfast. And so, writing a book that fed into that belief allowed my books, I mean, to give you an example, the case against sugar was reviewed on the front page of the New York Times Book Review, which is a very prestigious place to be. That was five years ago this week. The case against the case for keto, which is taking the same science and the same arguments and applying it to an effect weight loss diets, was not reviewed by the New York Times at all.
0: Can you just give us a very, very brief synopsis the case for keto, what is that in essence you're advocating?
1: Okay, yeah, so it's pretty simple. The idea is we don't get fat because we eat too much. We get fat because we secrete too much insulin or our fat tissues are too sensitive to the insulin we do secrete. Okay, that's the simplest way to describe it. So if you want to get fat out of your fat tissue, and this is textbook medicine, you have to reduce insulin levels significantly. Now, in many people that happens naturally But the assumption is that in people who are overweight or obese, they are accumulating fat because their insulin never gets low enough to mobilize all the fat that they're storing every day and it gets trapped in there. And if you want to fix that problem for many of us, you have to minimize insulin levels. And again, this is kind of textbook medicine, but the way you minimize insulin levels is by minimizing carbohydrate consumption. Okay, so you don't eat carbs. I may say anything other than green leafy vegetables, which have a lot of fiber and the carbs are very digestible. Carbohydrates are very few. Um, if you do that and you replace those calories with fat, you're now eating a ketogenic diet. In fact, if you're in ketosis, you know you're minimizing your insulin levels.
0: I tried the, the, the keto diet Um many years ago and I did what I I think I'm on the same um, treadmill as you talking about becoming ketogenic I was a bad person to be around and uh, it didn't work for me personally but um, I totally I totally understand why but yes the question is did anything
1: else I assume you were doing keto for a reason
0: yeah I was you know I was looking to I was you know I was getting married at the time and it was you know, it was important for me to kind of slim down the amount of carbohydrates I was putting in. And I think it worked, but ultimately, it worked in some ways, but ultimately, emotionally and psychologically, it, it, it wasn't the right pathway for me. Well, so
1: and this is the way I talk about it. And so the book, The Case for Keto was originally called How to Think About How to Eat. And some rethinking weight control and the science. of, So, the reason was called How to Think About How to Eat is because when you get off the idea that we get fat because we eat too much, then the question is you get on this idea that insulin's regulating fat accumulation. How do you think about that? And how do you proceed? And how do you address meals? Anyway, then to uh, a nutritionist and a very successful diet. Uh, cookbook writer in New York, Mark Bittman and David Katz had a book coming out a month before mine called how to think about how to eat, not how to think about how to eat, how to eat. Uh, We had to change the title. My publishers liked the parallel between the case for keto and the case against sugar, so we went for it. The point is, the gist of the argument is that carbohydrates are fattening. To those of us who fatten easily, and we all know who we are. The idea is it's carbohydrates are the problem because that's what's stimulating insulin secretion. That's what we secrete insulin to metabolize those carbs, basically, to do it promptly. Um, so you end up with this idea that if you want to lose weight, it's not about eating less. It's about the phrase I use is first used by the uh, famous French food writer, Antoine briat in 1825 in the most famous book ever written about food. He concluded carbohydrates are why people get fat, called it farinaceous foods back then. And he said that they, people need more or less rigid abstinence to the farinaceous foods. And then he said, sugar's the worst. I mean, he got it completely right as far as I'm concerned. This is 200 years ago. So more or less rigid abstinence to the carbohydrates in the diet. If it's complete abstinence or complete absence, give or take green leafy vegetables, you're basically eating a ketogenic diet. You are not getting enough glucose to fuel your brain, so your body takes the fat you're consuming, turns it into ketones, your liver generates ketones, you're technically in ketosis, your brain runs off ketones. Some of us do better with transitioning to that than others. But, you can improve the quality of the carbs you eat. So you stop drinking sodas and drinking beer and you, and the argument I make is that virtually anyone who sustains, uh, maintains and sustains uh, successful weight loss does it at least by a large extent by either restricting the carbs, reducing the carbs or improving the quality, not by eating less, even if eating less may be another sequelae of, losing weight.
0: And it seems like, you know, common, common sense to me. I want to, I want to play something off you, Gary. I want to see what you think of this talking about, you know, trusting conventional wisdom. This has kind of been a a new cornerstone that's started to emerge. Do you know the um, genetic epidemiologist, Tim Spector based out of King's college in London? Yeah, I know Tim. Okay. So he's about to release a new book. Um, I think he's, is pretty, um, you know, he's pretty renowned and trusted. He's about to release a new book called Why Almost Everything We've Been Told About Food is Wrong. Um, and he's arguing, you know, that most of the dietary advice that we've been given over the 20th century, 21st century is wrong. Eating plenty of fish, avoiding saturated fats, skipping breakfast, cutting down on processed meat, eight glasses of water a day. It's all bullshit. So he's laying the blame for this at the food industry, which, you know, he equates similarly to you, to the tobacco industry in the 60s and 70s. But he goes on to say most of that is equated with scientific researchers who have kept an intellectual blanket over the global food companies making fat profits. But he's arguing now that the most dangerous myth about food, and I'm paraphrasing here, is the assumption that we all respond to the same foods in the same way. But he's saying particular foods um, affect different people in different ways, and he's done a lot of work around the genetic implications and metrics here and your body clock and your gut microbiome. So what's your take on, on, on all that? Um, well, first of all, it's clear that
1: we all react to different foods differently, right, because we've all pretty much eaten the same diets. And some of us die of heart attacks in our 40s, and some live to be 90, and some become 400 pounds, and some can never get over 125 pounds. So if you look at populations eating, in effect, the same diet, and you see huge variations in physical fitness and health, you can assume we are responding to the diets differently. So in that one way, I don't think he's saying anything that isn't blindingly obvious. Okay, but the flip side of that, remember the Western disease argument, that's always a critical argument. You do not see these diseases or you did not see these diseases in populations that didn't eat Western diets. So now they like lung cancer is a classic example And populations that didn't have cigarettes had very low levels of lung cancer. Add the Western lifestyle cigarette smoking. In fact, American cigarettes, most Noticeably, and you get eventually epidemics of lung cancer. It's caused by the cigarettes. Now, I'm sure everyone responds to cigarettes differently, both the addictive power of cigarettes and the carcinogenic power. Not everyone. The only one in ten smokers gets lung cancer. The other nine in ten don't. Some of them get emphysema. Some of them don't. Some of them get heart disease. Some of them don't. So they're all responding differently to cigarettes. But we know the cigarettes or the problem, and we advocate for people not to smoke. That's the argument I'm making in the sugar book. Clearly everyone responds to sugar differently, but in populations that don't have sugar, you don't have these chronic diseases, okay? And this is an argument that was actually, I quote Dennis Burkett, the famous British uh, epidemiologist who got uh, convinced the world to eat fiber. that was a mistake, but his logic about the way diseases manifest themselves in populations was very compelling. Different, Add one element, like add the syphilis spirit sheet, and you get a whole host of different symptoms that appear in different people, depending on how they respond to this particular uh, organism. So, you know, people like Tim, he's clearly a very smart guy, but um, ultimately, you have to look when you read books like that, What, even if every food is different, the, the, the idea that we all respond to carbohydrate restriction differently <clears throat> or sugar restriction differently is not necessarily true, because I know what kind of experiments you would have to do to demonstrate that. I tried to fund these experiments with a not-for-profit that I co-founded in 2011 and finally shut down last week. Did it. And yeah, we finally. Oh, I'm
0: sorry to hear that. Yeah.
1: Yeah, you know, it was an interesting experiment. I mean, we didn't keep it alive because I don't want to. It needed somebody who would dedicate their life to fundraising, and I'm not the man for that. And I'm and not even
0: talented enough. For those like, in the maybe in the health and nutrition circles that might have said to you, you know, I, I told you so, kind of thing. Well, how would you respond to them? You know, it was an
1: interesting experiment. Anybody who wants to say, I mean, again, if you look at, we we released on my website now, you could see the result of the interesting experiment. I and mean, we funded four major experiments. We probably changed the way the world treats non-alcoholic fatty liver disease in children with the least expensive of the four experiments. The Experiments led to major publications in major journals. Three of them are considered highly cited research in their field. Um, you know, the world shifted while NUSI was in progress, and in, in it's whether NUSI played a role in that is hard to say. The NUSI is a nutrition science initiative. It's surprisingly hard to get, you know, <laughs> high net worth individuals who know they're not going to suffer from obesity. They may be willing to fund cancer or or dementia studies because they worry about that.
0: Gary, do you think there's a smoking gun somewhere in this very kind of vague um, uh, idea that sugar causes cancer? I mean, it gets batted about in public discourse quite often. Is there a smoking... There's not as far as I know, there's no definitive evidence behind it, No, but I have a very strong feeling that it might come in the next decades. Do you think there is? or
1: um, it's Well, okay. In my book, The Case Against Sugar, I, I said pretty much outright, you know, I have enough evidence to indict sugar. I don't have enough evidence to convict it. Uh, the reason is the kind of rigorous experimental trials you would need to test the high. So let's say we want to test the sugar causes cancer hypothesis. Um, We have to randomize populations to eating as they do today, eating a sugar-rich diet, to eating no sugar at all, or as little sugar as we can get them to eat. And then you have to keep them on those diets, and then you have to run them forward long enough so that enough cancer would manifest itself naturally that you might expect to see a difference Between your no sugar population and your high sugar population. Okay. So I'd say you might need 10,000 people in each group for 10 years. And you got to keep them on their diets, even while the people in the high sugar diet group are reading in the newspapers that sugar might be killing them. So they want to, they're going to start reducing their sugar consumption anyway. I think we won that battle, by the way. I think that we, sugar is now perceived as generally unhealthy. Whether it causes, you know, uh, plays a key role in carcinogenesis or not. So people are reducing their sugar consumption. You could see that in national statistics. Um, It's just a virtually impossible study to do. And if you approach the National Institutes of Health in the US or the uh, Medical Research Council in the UK, and he said, look, I want to do a study where we get People to stop eating sugar and see if they're healthier than people who keep eating sugar. The funding agency is going to, I'm not going to fund that study. Of course, they'll be healthier. It'd be crazy to think they're not. You know, so you couldn't even get a funding. So, but that's what you need for a smoking gun. You know, you could. And you think that that will never happen? I don't think that'll ever happen. Now, one of the studies we funded was on non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. So non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is, you know, uh, unprecedented incidence in the United States. It's exploded. It used to be that uh, physicians, if they thought that you only saw a fatty liver disease in adults, and if you had an adult with fatty liver disease, you assumed they were an alcoholic. And if they told you otherwise, you assumed they were lying. Beginning about the 1990s, doctors started diagnosing fatty liver disease in children who clearly weren't drinking alcohol. So this became known, and it associates with obesity and diabetes. It's excruciatingly common. I don't know what the numbers are. It's very common in certain genetic, uh, certain uh, ethnic groups. We just did an eight-week experiment. We funded an eight-week experiment where we basically provided got 40 kids with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and we randomized 20 to get eat foods that didn't have sugar in it they basically had a very low sugar diet and in the course of eight weeks their fatty liver disease resolved not entirely but it did pretty damn well over eight weeks just by restricting sugar
0: yeah i mean the problem that i have that i see is quite prevalent i'm I'm relatively informed. So I make what I think is pretty good choices nutrition wise and take up some other extracurricular activities, you know, like contemplative practices to add to that. But what I see out there in the world is that our diets are largely dictated by the food companies. I'm sure you'd agree with that. And that when you wake up like an average consumer, you know, on an average salary in a you know lower middle class neighborhood wherever they are in the western world goes to the shop from shelf height to packaging to to food choices that your friends and family make you know it's the saturation and penetration of marketing um, that basically tells us how to live and eat so I guess my question to you is thinking about the sugar dynamic, and to a larger extent, the fat dynamic. How do we break that negative loop? It's clear, like, we have no autonomy over our dietary decisions. Um, Well, we do have some autonomy.
1: Uh, It helps to be higher. So the higher your socioeconomic status, the more autonomy you have, the more choices you have. Um, The You know, my feeling when we at the Nutrition Science Initiative, NUSI, we used to talk about this all the time. We talked about the food environment, and the sort of thought environment. So you have to change the food environment so that people have the right choices to make. And I don't think you're going to get rid of ultra processed food or processed food because you're always going to need inexpensive choices for people who can't. Um, and and foods that have a long shelf life for people who can't afford, you know, fresh whole food from their green grocer. You know, um, but you got to get the thought environment right. You have to understand what health is. Everybody has to understand what a healthy diet is and it has to be a healthy diet. They have to understand why we get fat because obesity, overweight and obesity associates with increased risk of every chronic disease. So it ultimately comes down, whenever you read the chronic disease literature, rule number one is maintain a constant healthy weight. We have to know how to do it correctly. And we've had, that's where the energy balance, calories in, calories out thinking has been so horribly tragic, if I'm right, because we haven't known, we haven't understood that process. But if we have a thought environment where people know, you know, they they used to conventionally use the mother's wisdom used to be carbohydrates are fattening. Okay. And if everyone, if that's true and everyone knows it, that's what's communicated in schools by doctors, by public health messages, instead of telling us, you know, by then the food industry, I believe is not evil. They're not out there trying to make a buck at other people's expense they're, they're, they will follow the science, but the thought environment has to be correct. And if people like me and Nina Teicholtz and now the thousands and thousands of physicians who teach their patients to eat low-carb diets are right, then that thought environment has been tragically wrong, and that has to be fixed. And the problem is there's no actual mechanism to do that. And the fact that it runs into now a different paradigm of thinking that says the problem with modern diets is the animal The livestock consumption and that's the problem with the environment and now you've got another hour of conversation we could do (laughs) about
0: you're referring to you know carbon emissions and
1: carbon emissions and methane emissions and we should all eat plant-based diets it's the best possible thing for the environment and it's the best possible thing for our health and plants basically store their excess energy as carbohydrates and so when you are eating a plant-based diet you are getting most of your calories from carbohydrates and if we can't tolerate those without getting fatter and more diabetic then we have a problem so there's sort of competing paradigms there
0: yeah so just kind of like bringing it to uh you know some kind of close you know we're talking about I, I, You know, we're talking about diets over the 20th century, 19th century, um, because, you know, as the science grows, decision making kind of changes and you're talking about the thought environment. I love the way that you lay that out. Do you think there's a day coming in the future where we're not just advocating for personalised diets, but technology becomes so ubiquitous where you know it defines every single metric about your body, from your DNA to your blood type, that it's able to give you a hyper um, personalized, um, you know, menu about the type of food you. I mean, I'm going back to the Tim Spector thing: what you should be eating and the type of calorie input that you should be creating based on your particular physique or your own particular um, shape, for, for example.
1: Well, okay. so many issues there. One is, what is all this equipment going to tell you? It might even tell you, for instance, I mean, right now already we have continuous glucose monitors where in the United States for $70 every two weeks, you could see how everything you eat affects your blood sugar. Okay, and a lot of people who think it's interesting because the National Institutes of Health has started this massive research project. I think it's $150 million. And part of it is going to be let's give everyone continuous glucose monitors and see what happens, which is very nice, because once you start focusing on blood sugar rather than LDL cholesterol, you start focusing on the effects of carbohydrates, and if you try to minimize blood sugar, you are moving more and more in my direction. So people who think about low blood sugar or, or you know optimal blood sugar are people who think about carbohydrate restricted diets almost by definition. Um, after that, And this is an issue I have with a lot of the longevity crowd. You can find genes, for instance, that associate with long life and you could find foods that associated with turning those genes on and off in cells. But now you have a hypothesis that if I eat those foods or I don't eat those foods, I'm gonna live longer. And you have to test that hypothesis. I just can't get my head around the idea that science does not is not no longer a process of hypothesis and test, and when you start testing hypotheses of longevity, you've got to run long trials. Now you're looking at trials that, yeah, there's an interesting. This may or may not be a good analogy, but I, it's in doing my diabetes book. The thing that's fascinating. So, type one diabetes is a disorder. Or of insulin, you don't have enough. Your pancreas doesn't make enough insulin, or doesn't make insulin at all. So, in 1921, insulin is discovered. University of Toronto. Within a year, they're doing experiments with insulin therapy. Within two years, it's insulin's being distributed all over the world. Then, diabetic people with diabetes who would have died—you know, were diagnosed at age 12 and would have died at 16—are now getting to live apparently indefinitely. And it's a miracle. I mean, there's no almost no discovery in medicine that had such immediate therapeutic impact. I mean, it's a revolution. I mean, people talk about these kids who are like emaciated and look like concentration camp survivors or are near death within weeks, blossoming into life with insulin therapy. But the problem is they're young when they're diagnosed and they're young when they're dying. And by 1930s, these kids are now dying prematurely with, they're going blind, their kidneys are failing, they're, they're, they're getting neuropathy, their, am, their limbs are being amputated. Um, you've turned uh, uh, acute disease that terminates quickly in death into a chronic disease, and the results are awful. I mean, these kids got to live to be 30 years old, and then they die awful, deaths. Um, And part of the problem might have been the insulin therapy itself. That's still something the medical research community doesn't like to face, which is the problem of giving insulin in a way that evolution didn't design it to be given. Okay, so all these other, there's always a risk with any intervention you make. You know, if you decide to take up jogging, you're assuming that the benefits to your health will uh, be greater than the detriment to your knees, for instance, by pounding on the pavement every day, something you didn't do before. You know, primitive man may have been a runner, but they weren't running on London or Stockholm
0: streets. So there's a that your intervention of a keto diet is natural, essentially.
1: I, think, I mean, the assumption is it's relatively natural on some level. Humans evolved not eating grains or starches. They evolved eating primarily until at least, you know, 10,000 years ago with the discovery of agriculture. And again, you see immediate benefits. Whenever you're thinking in terms of longevity, you're working on a hypothesis driven intervention again. And then the question is, how do you know the hypothesis correct? Because you may not. See, I mean, I do it. I take vitamins. I take vitamin B in the morning. And I think, why do I do this? Because one of my friends, whom I respect, said I would feel better if I took vitamin B. I don't remember if I started feeling better when I did or not. Now I'm trapped in this take vitamin B every morning. <laughs> yeah. I also come from a family that all the men go deaf about 15 years ago, 20 years ago as I was writing Good Calories, Bad Calories, my first book, I developed very bad tinnitus, Um, Mm -hmm. ear ringing. And uh, I mean, it can be, it can keep you up at night. It's just, it's, I will take almost any, somebody suggests a supplement I could try that will make my tinnitus better, I will try it. If it makes my tinnitus better, I will continue to use it because it's made my life more bearable. I can think more clearly when my head isn't filled with angry hornets. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know if that's whatever I'm taking is shortening my life. I don't know what the fly. I'm assuming that because it's available for sale in the United States, the FDA has done some reasonable job of assuring that it's not toxic. And then I'm just gambling that it's not. Yeah because you never know if it's got some kind of active biological physiological effect there's a surely it's doing something bad somewhere else where it's doing something good to my
0: you know yeah gary i can see why you're a thorn in so many people's (laughs) side i really gary i mean this appreciate the time you've taken to answer the questions and to um you know unpack a lot of the, the stuff that you talk about and they're really important issues as well gary
1: Thank you, Ari, for for caring and having me on. Uh, It
0: was fun. Thank you, Ari. You've been listening to the 52 Insights Podcast. I'm Ari Stein. Thanks to Portico Quartet for their track Endless and thanks to Joel Stein of Glass Maps for producing this podcast. Sign up to my newsletter and subscribe to my podcast channels on Spotify and Apple to get access to my latest interviews with extraordinary people.